Veronica has her sword, Tom has his laser, and I have my mind. And a mind needs books and this podcast as a sword needs a whetstone if it's to keep its edge. Go to patreon.com slash sword and laser to pledge support and sharpen your mind. Welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it's so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and awesome discussions from fans just like you. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming back to the show, after too long, uh, Corey Doctorow. Corey is co-editor of Boing Boing, of course, a regular contributor to The Guardian and Locus and a whole bunch of other publications. And you may know so many of his novels, Little Brother, Homeland. Those were both New York Times bestsellers. Uh, welcome back to the show, Corey. Oh, what a pleasure it is to be back. Yeah, we were just reminiscing. I think we the last time we had you on the show was was to, to, was it twenty ten? Twenty ten, and we we read down and out in the Magic Kingdom, and I, I'm trying to remember if it was around that same time. Um, mm. I think the timelines match up approximately. Mm, that would be well. So down and out, you might have read it a long time after it came out. It's uh, two thousand three later. Yeah, it, exactly. <sighs> okay, then I'm way off in my timelines. But <laughs> I know. Anyway. I mean, I keep running into like grown ass humans who are like, "I read Little Brother in middle school," and I'm like, "Are you Doogie Howser? How did you read <laughs> Little Brother in music in, in middle school? That doesn't make any sense because I wrote it like a year ago, and then I realize it's been a decade." Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah, that's it's pretty incredible. But you are you're on book tour right now. You're on book tour for Walk Away. Um mm-hmm. and and you've probably got your description nailed down pretty well after going to so many different events, you know, city to city, talking about the book. But we'd love to hear what what the book is about. Sure. Well, you know, I call it an optimistic disaster novel. And I think in in the pulp fiction tradition which I'm very proud to be a part of, we have, you know, the man against man stories, and we have the man against nature stories, and then we try to get two for one with a man against nature against man story, which is like the earthquake knocks your building down and then your neighbors come over to eat you. But the reality is that, you know, by and large in disasters, people really rise to the occasion. Rebecca Solnit wrote this amazing book called Paradise Built in Hell that really inspired me about the consistent pattern of people being wonderful in times of crisis and then us remember them as being terrible. And um, I thought, what if we could make up a disaster novel where instead of having all the drama arise from everyone turning into enemies, it was everybody being fundamentally on the same side, but not being able to agree on what to do, even though they're on the same side and having bitter feuds, Mm -hmm. not because they're enemies, but because they're friends who love and respect each other. And that's so much more wrenching. So it's a novel about people who walk away from a society where extreme wealth disparity and a general sense that most people just aren't needed by the super rich anymore. And if you're not needed by the super rich, there's not really any reason for you to be there. Causes them to, you know, go find these um, uh, brownfield sites, these super fun sites left behind by the collapse of industrial society and uh, to use stolen software from the UN High Commission on Refugees to figure out how to build not um, grim refugee housing, but elaborate, fantastic, uh, luxurious accommodation and play spaces in which they um, while away the years with this kind of, you know, playful, open source, improvisational spirit. 
and everything's going fine, and this is a great uh, escape valve for the society, and the, even the super-rich are more or less okay with it. And then the scientists who the super-rich are, are spending a lot of money to get them to develop practical immortality decide that they can't really be complicit in helping the human race speciate, so they steal the fire of the gods, they take the secret of immortality and bring it to the walkaways. And when the, the super-rich realize that they're going to have to live on the same planet as the rest of us, not just for our lifespans, but forever... Uh, all out war breaks out. So I was going to say it's not dystopian, but there's certainly an element of dystopian to all out war breaking out there. Did it, would you call it dystopian? Because it, it's, it's not the gritty, you know, we're all eating each other dystopian that people usually think of. Well, I think the thing that cleaves dystopia from disaster is what people do. Um, and so uh, even a well-designed utopia, a society that has, you know, um, uh, everything going for it is still subject to exogenous shocks. It, it still might have earthquakes or tsunamis or, you know, belligerent neighboring states. You know, I'm a Canadian. We're familiar with that. Um, <laughs> or rising seas or, or horribly mutating microbes. And um, it's what the society does during the crisis. Does it weather it gracefully or does it fail catastrophically that tells you whether you have a dystopia or a utopia? After all, it, it turned out that if you don't care how things fail, you can make a society that works really well by just loaning anyone however much money they want for a house and assume that house prices will go up forever and not really worry about whether they can ever pay back the loan. And if you don't care how things fail, that works really, really well. It's just <laughs> a decade later, we're still dealing with its 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 failure mode. So the failure mode is, is, I think, what distinguishes disaster from catastrophe. And I don't think of it as a dystopian novel. It has dystopian furniture, right? It mm. has dystopian motifs. But the message of this, just like the message of Little Brother, is not to imagine the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. It's to imagine the future, imagine people as imperfect, flawed vessels doing what they can to muddle along and sometimes getting it so right that there is a moment of happiness all around. And even, in the, even under the worst of circumstances. So do you think we're over that gritty dystopian future binge that we've been on literally uh, li literarily literally literally and literally literally and literarily yeah well it's clear that there's an appetite for some of our great historic dystopian novels and obviously 1984 and handmaid's tale topping the charts tells you that there's mm -hmm. something going on here I don't know if we're over it or not you know I think science fiction's relationship to the future is that science fiction writers write all the futures they can think of and then the combination of editors and readers pluck out the ones that seem to resonate with their fears or aspirations. And so it's a kind of oracle that uses the judgment of the readership and the imagination of the writers to surface this stuff that is otherwise kind of hard to put your finger on. And, you know, for some pretty good reasons, we're spending a lot of time thinking about, about disasters and crises, partly because we're in the middle of one and partly because we can see some pretty big ones on the horizon, uh, mostly due to, to denial, which is another thing that, that walkaway concerns itself with. Um, you know, when I wrote Little Brother, I looked around at, at um, pulp plotting as, as uh, it applied to computers, and I thought to myself, you know... Um, we tend to use computers as plot conveniences. If there's a thing that 
if computers could do it, the plot would work better. We just assume they can do it. And if there's a capability that we know computers have, but the plot would work better if they didn't have it, we just wave our hands and say the computers don't have that capability right now. And I thought, what if we could tell a story with this formal constraint that the computers act like computers. And all the drama comes not from denying the nature of computers, but in embracing it in the same way that um, after uh, you know the, the advent of the cell phone, writers spent a lot of time tying themselves in knots, figuring out how they could get the cell phone to stop working at the moment that the hero needs to tell someone else something really urgently. And then along came novels like uh, Ian Banks' Dead Air, where he was like, what if the tension could come from a cell phone working perfectly? And so he put his hero in the murderer's house searching it when the murderer came home unexpectedly, and the hero hides in a closet and texts a continuous stream to his confederate who's waiting outside, telling him how close the murderer is getting. So, you know, using the, using the way the world works as the source of your drama instead of denying it, I think, heightens the drama. And so... Writing a story where there's a disaster and people behave the way that, you know, we, we know in our hearts they really will, not not the way that's kind of narratively convenient or is fun if you suspend your disbelief, but that anyone who's lived through disaster or paid close attention really knows what happened. And then still having really intense, terrible problems, that creates an immediacy to it. It makes it seem more like a projection and less like a fantasy. And, and I think that, you know, Walkaway is still pretty new, but the critics are recognizing this, that the early reviews really do focus in on this to a certain extent. It, it does bring to mind a little bit for me uh, the the idea that Kevin Kelly kind of put out about Protopia, mm-hmm. and we, we've talked about that a little bit on the show in the past as well. And and it seems like this is really almost along those lines more than either you know really walking the line of utopia or dystopia. And what does that even really mean anymore? Because I think it, it does feel a lot more natural to think there's always going to be things that go horribly horribly wrong with technology. But people or other technology also work against those wrongs. And it's just this kind of lockstep progression uh, throughout history where we, we are combating these, these things that we're creating, but also serve to destroy part of us as well. Yeah, you know, um, Bruce Schneier has this aphorism that security is a process and not a product. And that applies to a lot of actual products, too, that they are processes and not products, especially uh, in the universe of, of software-enabled products where, where literally they change from moment to moment, um, sometimes in a way that's very dreadful where, you know, capabilities that you, um, that, that you rely on just disappear because you've got a software update and the manufacturer decided you don't deserve that capability anymore. But, um, you know, that, that is like applicable to a lot of things, this idea that um, uh, the world... Uh, and the stuff in it is not final. It's 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 a thing that just changes dynamically. It it, it we we invent a thing, and we think we have a handle on what it's going to do, and then we discover that mm-hmm. it meets the real world. There are it interacts with other things in unexpected ways, and so we tweak those other things, and we tweak the thing, and we you know it's this dynamic territory. And from moment to moment, it's not like there's a victory. There's just there's just tendencies. And I think that that's the thing Kevin Kelly actually nails really well in, in what I think is his best book, um, What Technology Wants. 
3D printing plays a major role, obviously, in that, and that is currently a, a, a technology that we have. Do you think we're, we're going to get to the point where we almost have a unlimited resources as long as we have the materials by which to, to create with? You know, I, I've given that a lot of thought because I've written three novels now about scarcity and abundance. So the first one was Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, which was about the part of scarcity and abundance that's about how much we want and what we want. And, and obviously, like, whether something is scarce or abundant really depends on how much of it you plan on using. Um, you know, your, your, one pizza is abundant for one dinner. It's not abundant for dinner for 100. And so what you want really, really changes abundance or scarcity. Makers was about what we can make. And, you know, we have um, severely re- decreased the amount of material that we need to make stuff in the last couple generations. One of the things that industrial capitalism has proven really excellent at is dramatically reducing the labor, energy, and material inputs into goods, not out of a sense of, like, environmental duty, because, but because the less of that you put in your thing, uh, the less you spend making it, and the more profit you can make, or the lower char- price you can charge, or both. Uh, and so in, you know, a couple of generations, we've seen orders of magnitude decrease in the material inputs into, you know, cars and houses and all kinds of things close. There's a great Bank of Canada study where they went through old IKEA catalogs and tried to figure out what was the best predictor of a piece of IKEA furniture persisting over time. And it's that over time it gets lighter. And the cubic footage that it occupies gets smaller when it's shipped because there's no perfect way to know how to pack a a solid. It's something called the knapsack problem. And so basically, if IKEA can figure out how to reduce the material inputs and the logistical costs of shipping it, the energy that's embodied by it, then um, it, it stays in the catalog and actually gets cheaper year to year. And so, you know, if the question is how do we provide uh, every person in the world the same quality of life as Americans have when that would require six Earths worth of material, uh, the answer might be, well, we just reduce the amount of material that goes into those things by five-sixths. But what Walkaway is about is not um, how we make things, that was makers, or what we want, that was down in the Magic Kingdom. It's how we distribute them. It's the logistical piece. Because um, if the thing that we care about for most material objects is the services that they deliver and not their unique characteristics. I mean, there are people who collect cars because they appreciate cars as beautiful machines, but most of us just want the service of carness. We want to have a vehicle that gets us from A to B with relative privacy and relative efficiency. And if we can figure out how to use the same logistics that now lets Google have a data center in Belgium that uh, is in a valley where it's so cool that two-thirds of the time they don't need to have chillers, and the remaining third, they just turn it off because Google's data doesn't care what metal processes it, and the system is so well-coordinated, the logistics are so beautiful that they can just tune the entire global network to take that data center out of it on days when the sun is shining in the valley. And so if we could use that to distribute cars and houses and and all the other things, lawnmowers and whatnot, and, and to give us not a second best, you know, eat your Wheaties, uh, um, austere version of material culture, but like a super luxurious, amazing thing where every physical object you interact with is beautiful and beautifully made and completely retuned with every use based on all the new use data that, that flies off of it as it goes and gracefully degrades back into the material stream when it's reached the end of its duty cycle, then we can have 
unbelievable abundance. We can have that kind of Promethean abundance that has been the historic province of the left, which promised that every uh, peasant would someday live like a lord, instead of the current version of what a lot of the left seems to espouse, which is that someday every lord will live like a peasant, that will have some kind of degrowth agenda where billions of people will somehow disappear and will go back to living like it's the 17th century somehow. That kind of that kind of abundance is kind of key in in the abolition of work and the ludic sensibility and the idea that you can you can just pursue what you want to do because the resources are there for you to do it. Yeah, and that's you know in Walkaway that's more or less what they do. They they solve you know Keynes wrote this um, essay in 1930 predicting that we would have everything we needed and wouldn't have to work by now, uh, and he just he just grossly underestimated how much um, we would end up wanting. But he also addressed this problem like, what would we do if we didn't have to work anymore? And, you know, Walkaway is full of people who do what people do today when they when they can't find work. You know, there's a sizable um, cohort of people who uh, can't find work and have stopped looking and are doing things like playing games and, you know, joining mm-hmm. maker spaces and, and doing social things and, you know, having an intensely great time in many ways uh, without any paid work. And you really the only source of their, their sorrows is that they're not sure how they're going to resolve their economic precarity, but not that they're not filling their days in ways that make them happy. The other thing that Walkaway reminded me of with the ecological disaster and sort of removing yourself from the, the quote-unquote mainstream was Ecotopia by Ernest Kallenbach. Are you familiar with that book? I know the book, but I haven't read it. It's it's of its age, right? It's from the 70s. And so it's about a, a secession from California and creating mm. an ecological area separate. Mm, so timely. Th- th- yeah, there's well, yeah. And there's a lot of differences because it's based on things that were popular in thought and technologies from then. But but that underpinning idea of when, you know, when you're pushed to, to the brink at some point, you just withdraw and and start over seems to be a a common theme well you know the the the, another way of looking at this is it's kind of the inverse of um atlas shrugged you know which is about the the people who who think of themselves as being lifted well no this is like everybody else shrugs back right Uh oh uh you're gonna withdraw your job creating wealth creating labor from us well don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out right it's it's this idea that um, billionaires aren't special snowflakes that no matter how good you are at, you know, designing buildings or taking out people's pancreases, if there isn't someone uh, cleaning the toilets, you're still going to die of listeria. <laughs> I, I, want that, I want that like on a banner like <laughs> in Silicon Valley somewhere. That was, you know, that was my, um, in the, in the lead up to the election, that was my anti-Trump slogan was never listeria. Cause you know, my, my, my feeling was that, um, that the one thing that we needed to, to all understand was that uh, the thing the president can do is not make laws, but to imp- appoint the uh, administrators who oversee the uh, administrative agencies, which is where all the rubber meets the road. Like, you're very unlikely to have any interaction with the courts, and you're very unlikely to have any, inter- any interaction with a law that Congress made. But, you know, what the administrative branch does determines everything from, like, what kind of car you drive to what kind of road it's on to what kind of school your kids go to. And importantly, whether or not you die of listeria. And, you know, after the RNC, I was like, you vote for that guy and you know that he's going to put the world's 472nd rated lady golfer in charge of the FDA. And then you will die of listeria. And if it's not her, it'll be an MMA fighter or Chachi. 
and you will you know, I'd die. take her at this point. I would take yeah, her. Yeah, no shit, point. right? And and but you her. would you would still die of listeria. I mean, that's the that's problem. Okay. Maybe worse ways to go. Yeah. I, I this I don't I don't know anymore. Um, I have all these questions, and and we're running out of time. But I, I feel like I just want to get you on a podcast sometime and talk about like universal basic income, <laughs> and, like all these other ideas that probably somehow fit in with the book as well. But I, I was curious to know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe it's been a while since you've published a an adult novel. Mm. So what what brought you back out of the young adult world? Well, so I kept writing fiction for adults, just not solo standalone novels. I, I wrote a novel with Charlie Strauss called Rapture of the Nerds and that's right, that's right. tons of novellas and short fiction. Um, you know, I, I think that like, like dystopian fiction, young adult fiction um, has two different meaning, meanings. And one is the genre. So it's, you know, what the furniture look like looks like and, and what the storytelling conventions are. And then um, the other is the marketing category and how you what it signals to other people. So I'm working on a third little brother book right now, and it's for adults. And whenever I tweet that, someone inevitably says, hey, I'm an adult and I like the first two little brother books. Was I reading them wrong? And it's obviously not that you were reading them wrong. All young adult fiction is cool for adults to read. Not all fiction intended for adults is cool for all kids to read. And um, I feel like writing adult fiction lets me deal with subjects that are more intense in some ways than, than young adult subjects. Young adult fiction uh, is very dramatic in part because it's a story. It tends to be stories of firsts, you know, uh, kids telling their first live consequence or kids, you know, um, uh, having their first experience where they're r- responsible for their own actions. And firsts are inherently dramatic because the, when you when you do a first, you don't know how it will turn out until it's happened. You know, telling your 10th live consequence is banal. But the first one is a, a leap off a cliff without knowing whether or not the wings that you've made will, will work. And um, adult fiction has different sources of drama uh it's not that it's not that intense kind of that like what what um dan savage calls uh new relationship energy right it's not it's not about the um getting into something that's that you haven't done before and experiencing it very intensely or at least not always sometimes it can be about the drama of something that you've done forever stopping or, you know, some other source of drama that's not really endemic to, to YA. And so writing for adults, it's, it's very satisfying, as is writing for young adults. And of course, you know, from a purely commercial perspective, a lot of those YAs who read my YA novels are now adults. And I would love to write material that can carry, that can, that can grow up with them. Did it feel, did it feel, real fast, did it feel like a relief to not have to think about changing your tone for a younger audience this time around? I don't know that I change my tone so much as I, I do try to avoid the kinds of explicit material that might get a young adult librarian fired if they were to recommend the book to, to, a, to a kid whose parents they didn't know anything That's thoughtful about. thoughtful of you. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that I, that I had to like vary the material per se. Mm. You know, it's you, when you, when you meet or hear about child prodigies, they are always prodigies in um, disciplines that are based on reasoning, but not on a large corpus of knowledge. So they're like good at chess or math or physics, 
but no one's ever met like a child prodigy lawyer or a child prodigy historian, right? Because the amount of knowledge you have to absorb to make useful inferences in those disciplines just takes a lot of time. And so it's not that kids can't reason. I mean, their, their reason is developing, but kids can be first-rate reasoners. It's that they lack the context. And mm-hmm. so adult fiction can just take some of that context as read. And young adult fiction sometimes has to flesh that context in. Well, the book is called Walk Away. Uh, it's available now in all the various forms. And in fact, one of the things I, I have been such a cheerleader for you, Corey, over, over the years is your fight uh, against digital locks. Uh, so when you buy this, there is no digital rights management applied. That used to be very difficult back in the day. Has that become easier to, to get publishers and platforms on board with? Well, with Tor Books, it's become easier because they've dropped it from their whole line and they're the largest science fiction publisher in the English-speaking world. And so it was great to work with Tor on this. I've actually gone a little further this time around. Um, I decided that I would uh, launch the first ever uh, ebook store that allowed authors to serve as retailers for their publishers. So you can go to craphound.com and you can buy the same ebook that Amazon will sell you. And I am the Amazon in this transaction. So the 30% that Amazon would pocket, I pocket. And then I take the remaining 70% and I send it to Tor. They take 25% of that and send it back to me as a royalty. So I effectively double my royalty by selling the books myself. But because I sell them myself, not only do they have no DRM, there's no license agreement. So the deal with this book is exactly the same as the deal of any physical book you've ever bought, which is like the law is the law. Don't break it. Not, uh, hey, Books may be older than publishing and printing and paper, but uh, all of the social contracts that are associated with it, we have just unilaterally renegotiated because now they're bits, right? (laughs) Um, And so you don't have to give up any rights to buy the books. And so it's the only way in the history of the world to buy an ebook from a major publisher without having to agree to a license agreement. And also because I know who my publisher is everywhere in the world, I don't have to um, say to you, oh, you're coming from England, go find the English store and buy it from the English store. I just take your money, and if you're from England, I send that money to my British publisher. Uh, and so, again, it like solves a lot of those other problems. So we're going to open source that software once we've worked the kinks out. We, we're just kind of finishing it up now. Um, and I've, I'm using it already to sell the ebooks and I did an amazing audio edition that uh, I recorded with Will Wheaton and Amber Benson and Amanda Palmer and a bunch of other amazing readers from the audiobook world and that's also a DRM free download on my website and uh, no EULA that's phenomenal. I, I wish everybody would get on board with that. That would be, I, I, it was really funny though, when you said you were like your own version of Amazon in my mind, I went, how does he handle fulfillment himself? Ha! Yes. And I was like, oh, bits. Just bits. Right. Yeah, Just the, the bits. part of Amazon that um, is the uh, is the pure cash cow that they use to lock people into their platform, uh, and that if the author could grab it, uh, would account for an extra thirty percent. You know, it's funny because like the Authors Guild, who have done some really dumb and reactionary things in the past, have had this campaign to to double authors' ebook royalties 
which, you know, the publishers are not going to change the royalty schedule for writers. You know, they would rather drink a gallon of warm spit for breakfast every morning than, than <laughs> double our ebook um, percentage. But this lets the writer double their royalty while uh, offering something Amazon can never offer, which is like a fair trade ebook. Right, yeah, an ebook yeah. that that directly benefits the author, but that keeps the publisher. Who, after all, you know, I'm uh, the the reason I'm touring thirty something cities around the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. is because my publisher has sorted that out for me, as well as all the publicity and everything else. And so it keeps them in the loop. It benefits them for for the stuff that they're doing, and it keeps my agent, who sold the book and takes care of my career, in the loop. Um, all it does is cuts out Amazon, who, after all, their major role in, in selling ebooks is formatting text files, which it turns out is like not a specialist skill anymore. Other than craphound.com, of course, which you mentioned, where can people follow your work online, follow up with you? Um, well, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm, I'm, I'm still the first Corey in Google for now. Uh, Boingboing.net, uh, as you mentioned, I write uh, on every day. And um, I have a, a, a secret, not so secret, secret Tumblr called mostly signs some portents uh, if you just google cory doctor tumblr you'll find it which is um weird mid-century modern art old science fiction book covers um interesting blog post from 10 years ago and um uh i said mid-century modern stuff uh, just other oddities and then uh, i'm on uh twitter at dr o uh and um you can always check out my Bebo page. Uh, I update that all the time. Uh, I, I'm, I'm also I'm on um, Six Degrees and uh, Friends Reunited. So just find me there. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks again, Corey, for yeah, talking to us you. today. Thanks, guys. It was great chatting. And of course, our show is currently entirely funded by our patrons. Uh, thank you to all the folks who back our show. If you want to learn more, head over to patreon.com slash sword and laser. You can also support the show by buying books through our links. You can find links to the books we talk about and some of our other favorites at swordandlaser.com slash picks. If you want to get in touch with us, our email address is feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 4157-SWORD-6. We'll see you next time. Bye.